This question was posed to me for consideration in our sermon series about faith questions. What is the difference between God's forgiveness and ours? Forgiveness. What a timely topic. Or not. Maybe for some of you it's too soon to talk about forgiveness. I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about it either, but it feels like the Holy Spirit at work that I was handed this for today. There's a lot of hurt in our country right now after Tuesday's election. There's a lot of hurt here in this congregation. If you aren't hurting this morning, think of it this way. Let's say you never liked your best friend's husband, and then he dies. You would not then say to your best friend, well, I never liked him anyway. Instead, your heart would break for your friend because her heart is breaking and you love her. If you are satisfied with the election results, I invite you to sit in that place this morning, the place of understanding that people that you love are grieving. I personally have been circling in no particular order through all five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, not to mention fear. This week is a good reminder that forgiveness is easy to talk about when it's abstract, when it's a story in the Bible, or when someone else clearly needs to forgive and move on. Forgiveness sounds good on paper. And then something real happens to us, something bad, and suddenly we realize how hard forgiveness is. Where do we even start with forgiveness in this, this presidential election? With the media? The ease with which we hunker into our own information silos? The pollsters? The nearly 50% of eligible voters who didn't bother to vote? The people who voted for third-party candidates? The Electoral College? Our reality TV culture? The candidates themselves? or our own Northern California blue bubble that keeps us from seeing what the world looks like to other voters. It will probably take years to sort out what happened, who is to blame, what caused the election to go the way that it did, and in the meantime, many of us grieve. A clergy colleague in Berkeley, Molly Finney Basket, wrote about a conversation that she had with a member of her church on Wednesday. A very upset church member didn't want bromides or to be rushed to forgiveness and healing and moving on or God's got this talk, but she felt very helpless and hated it. What can I do? Tell me what to do, she asked. You're not going to like it, Basket said. It's day one. The work today is to feel helpless and scared, to feel in our bodies what so many people, LGBTQ, brown, etc., have felt every day for the last 16 months and for perhaps their whole lives before that. We need the flesh memory of that fear so that when the markets return to normal and our own security is reassured, we're still in the game to organize and put ourselves on the line and speak up and fight for those who have less power and privilege, who don't have the luxury 
to stop being vigilant. Then reflecting on this conversation on Thursday, Basket wrote, it's day two, and might still be a day for hiding in a couch fort and binge-watching West Wing. But day eight, or month four, or year, year two is coming, and movement's going to need us all to work, y'all, all of us. So grief just might be in order today, or for a while. I do not intend to rush you. But then we get to work, all of us. And the question is, what is the work? Does forgiveness, God's forgiveness, or ours, have anything to do with that work? Should we forgive? Would God forgive? Would God want us to forgive? What good does it even do? What good might forgiveness do us on day eight, or month four, or year two? It is my humble opinion that forgiveness is the key to our nation's healing and moving forward. In the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Peter interjects a question in the middle of a conversation about how people should try to get along in community. So how many times should I forgive someone who's wronged me? Seven times? Peter figures Jesus would be exceptionally generous with forgiveness. And then Jesus surprises Peter by saying we should forgive each other 70 times, or in some translations, as Diana pointed out, 70 times 7, which is 490 times. Then Jesus tells the parable. The overall message is pretty clear, echoing the Lord's Prayer petition that God wants us to forgive others even as we have been forgiven. Some details help flesh this out. A talent was about 130 pounds of silver and was the equivalent to about 15 years of a laborer's wages, which means that this servant owed his master about 150,000 years of labor. In other words, he would never, ever, not in a million years, be able to pay it back. A denarius, in comparison, was worth about a day's wage, which meant that the second servant owed the forgiven one about a hundred days of labor, no small debt, but still, we all wonder why the first servant couldn't forgive a minor debt when he'd just been forgiven an impossibly huge one. The answer lies in the way that we count and calculate and keep track. Peter starts the conversation asking Jesus for a number. He wants to know just how much will be expected of him. Jesus turns Peter's question on its head with a ridiculous, even impossible answer. You want to play the numbers game, Jesus asks? Okay, how about this one? It's not that Jesus wants Peter to increase his forgiveness quota. It's that he wants him to stop counting altogether. Because forgiveness, like love, is relational rather than legal. Forgiveness is relational, not legal. It cannot be counted. Had Peter asked Jesus how many times he should love his neighbor, we'd see the problem immediately. Love can't be quantified or counted. But he asks about forgiveness, and we miss it because we tend to think, you screw up and you're either forgiven or you're punished. 
But forgiveness, as an expression of love, ultimately is not about regulating behavior, but rather about maintaining and nurturing our relationships. That is key. Forgiveness, as an expression of love, is not about regulating behavior, but rather about maintaining and nurturing our relationships. Desmond Tutu describes forgiveness this way. Because we are human, some of our interactions will go wrong, and then we will hurt or be hurt or both. It is the nature of being human. It is unavoidable. Forgiveness is the way we set those interactions right. It is the way we mend tears in the social fabric. It is the way we stop our human community from unraveling. Forgiveness is nothing less than how we bring peace to ourselves and the world. It is the way we stop the human community from unraveling. Forgiveness is nothing less than how we bring peace to ourselves and our world. Tutu's description helps us figure out what forgiveness is and isn't. Tutu says willingness is essential. So for starters, no one should ever tell anyone they must forgive, that it's time to forgive. Why don't you just forgive and move on? There's been a lot of quit whining, move on rhetoric in social media these last few days. But forgiveness, like love, can't be commanded or forced. It has to be chosen. Perhaps that's the primary difference between God's forgiveness and ours. According to the Exodus passage, God always chooses to forgive. It is God's nature to forgive. God is the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Why? Because God wants to be in relationship with us. Now, for most of us, forgiveness doesn't feel natural at all. It feels hard. It is hard. One reason is that people think it means saying to someone who's hurt you deeply, oh, that's okay, but it's not okay. And that isn't forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't forgiving and forgetting. The test of forgiveness is not whether we remember what happened, but whether we're still controlled by the pain of it. Forgiveness doesn't overlook evil, it's not denial, it's not destructive. It doesn't mean that we let whatever hurt or threatened us or someone else to continue. No one should put up with violence, threats, or abuse. And forgiveness isn't the same thing as approval. In fact, the reason we need to forgive someone is that something has happened which we do not approve. We will not approve of it. What we can do is forgive. Forgiveness recognizes that people are always bigger than their faults. Forgiveness sees the humanity of the person who has wronged us and also our own humanity. We had a Harry Potter Sunday here a couple of weeks ago. It was loads of fun and we heard from the kids about the biblical wisdom buried in these children's stories. And so to bring this home for our many Harry Potter fans, In the film version of The Order of the Phoenix, Sirius Black tells Harry, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. 
We've all got both light and dark inside us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That is our challenge on day eight and month four and year two as we get to work. No one lives according to Jesus' 70 times 7 kind of forgiveness perfectly. If we try to read this parable literally, that is, make forgiveness into a law that can be measured, then we are all doomed, because it seems that the only thing the king can't forgive is our failure to forgive. But what if we read the judgment of that master another way? What if the master is saying that the servant is already a slave to the world of counting and calculating and will remain a slave to that, to that way of being until the end of time or until he can forgive others, whichever comes first? In other words, what if the punishment is living with the consequences of refusing to forgive? Perhaps then, when the Exodus passage tells us that God will visit the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, that's all it's telling us, that the consequences of our actions and our wrongdoing do impact us and future generations. It impacts future generations when we refuse to care for the planet or the vulnerable. It impacts future generations when we choose hatred and fear over love. And it impacts future generations when we refuse to forgive, when we refuse to stop the fabric of community from unraveling. This way of looking at the parable doesn't soften it. It pushes us to the very brink of our being, because that is where we are living right now, my friends. We are living with the consequences of refusing to forgive, and it is impacting our lives and our children's lives. That is what this election uncovered in technicolor glory. We are a nation of people who would rather remain ideologically pure than understand another person's perspective or even explore the facts. A young video blogger named Chris Thompson describes how both the right and the left fear each other right now for good reasons. He says, if we both fear each other so much, what do we do? The solution is talking to each other. Do we cut off Trump supporters? They aren't, for the most part, hateful people says Thompson, people are so quick to cut somebody off based on who they voted for without taking a second to ask why. And when you do that, you know what happens? Nothing. Cut them off. You stay in your bubble, I'll stay in mine, just judging each other based on a vote rather than having a conversation with another human being. He notes that there's been an uptick in violence and intimidation on both sides and he hopes we figure it out because he says, for me, it's breaking my heart. Maybe we need to get in touch with that. David Lose writes, Forgiveness is a decision about the past that ultimately determines the future. When you forgive, you release the past and enter into an open future. When you cannot forgive, you remain captive to the past until the end of time. 
Forgiveness in this sense is freedom, freedom from the past, freedom for the future, the kind of freedom God wants for each of us. And so we look to the future as individuals, as a congregation, and as a nation. Maybe forgiveness is not your project for today or this week. Maybe you need to binge-watch West Wing a while longer. But retaliation, revenge, repaying evil for evil, denying the humanity of those who have hurt us, refusing to listen, those will not take us into the open future to which God calls us. Where do we begin this conversation? It has to begin in our own hearts and move out from there. You might be thinking, there's no point in this conversation. No one will change. But what if the goal isn't to change anyone, but just to listen, to understand, which in fact changes people? This conversation does not in any way negate our calling to be the body of the Christ that we know, the one who was always on the side of the last, the least, and the lost. We will be called in days to come to put our privilege to work in whatever form we have it, for the good of those who lack it. We need, as Molly Basket writes, to be allies and human shields, white people for people of color, men for women, cis for trans, straight for queer, documented for undocumented, citizen for refugee, Christians for Muslims, wealthy for broke, adults for children, able-bodied for disabled, mentally well for mentally struggling, sober for addict, employed for unemployed, housed for homeless. We need to listen all along the way. And we just may need a stronger spiritual life to face what's coming. On Friday, a church member said she was wondering what I'd preach today if I were preaching to a sanctuary full of Trump supporters. I said I'd preach the very same sermon that I prepared for this morning, this sermon. Our nation is woefully broken for both the left and the right, stepping from behind our convictions to listen to each other with an open heart is not only step one in forgiveness, it is what forgiveness looks like. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.